Well, let's pray together. Lord our God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this text which encourages us to think about the Lord Jesus and his return and to be active in terms of doing his will. And we ask that you will encourage us as we think about it, but also inspire us to greater acts of service in his name as we look forward to his coming. For his sake we pray. Amen. Uh, The true story is told that Sir Ernest Shackleton in one of his three expeditions to the Antarctic at one critical moment was forced to separate from the rest of his team on a very remote island called Elephant Island. Unfortunately, during his absence, the weather worsened and the men on the island were cut off and Shackleton could do nothing to get back to them or send them a message to reassure them. After days and days of trying, he finally found a narrow channel through the ice and returned to the island unsure of whether the men would be dead or alive. On return, he was pleasantly surprised to find that the men were well and what is more, they had everything ready and packed up and no sooner did Shackleton arrive than all were in readiness readiness to leave again. Sometime later, Shackleton asked one of the men how it was that they were so ready on that particular day of his arrival. Did they know somehow that he would be coming? The man replied that the leader that Shackleton left in charge woke them up each morning, folded up his sleeping bag and said one thing, get, out of, get your things ready boys, the boss may come today. And on that day, he did. It kind of sums it up so well, doesn't it? Get your things ready, for your Lord and Master may come today. When we last left the Thessalonians, they were troubled. Though they'd been taught the gospel and come to believe the gospel, they'd also been well taught by the apostles that Jesus would return. And many of them expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. But as they waited for him to come and as that time stretched on and as some of their number began to die, this raised all sorts of questions. We talked about those questions last week. Questions like, as the fact that our friends have died disqualify them from seeing and taking part in the great day of the return of Christ? was the fact that they had died a sign of God's judgment. Had Paul misled them, making them think that Jesus would return so soon? And on top of that, the big question, just when would Jesus return anyway? Paul didn't want them to be uninformed. He knew that ignorance would prove to be a stumbling block. So he gave them answers and last week we looked at the answers Paul gave to their questions about those who had died in Christ, that they were safe with him, that they would not miss out on the Lord's return at all. This week we look at the answers that Paul gave to their questions about the times and dates of Jesus' return. Paul gives two responses. The first is in verses 1 to 3, and his response was that the time and the date are unknown. 
The text says, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The Thessalonians were asking these questions about the timing of Jesus' return in order to make preparation for the end. They were perhaps hoping that Paul would give them some specific date for the return of Jesus so that they might overcome the problem that they had and we now share in. And that problem is ignorance. We just don't know when Jesus will come back. But Paul's declaration here is that the solution to their problem doesn't lie in knowing the date. Nobody knew the date then and nobody knows the date now. That hasn't stopped many from trying to work it out or from making bold predictions, but sad to say that same number who have done that have all been proved to be wrong. Now, we look around at the world today and we can easily say, surely say that the end is near. The uncertainty of these times fits well with all that will mark the last days that the scriptures tell us. But any attempt to fix a date and any attempt to put a timetable down on paper for the return of Jesus is to go far beyond what the Bible reveals or allows for. The point that Paul makes to the Thessalonians is a simple one. If you're thinking of marking a date on your calendars, forget it. Don't even think about it. And verse 2 explains why. Evidently, during his visit to Thessalonica, Paul had taught them about the day of the Lord. No doubt he explained from the Old Testament what that term meant, that it was a day of judgment. The term the day or the term the day of the Lord occurs in many places in the prophets. The prophets refer to it as the time when the Lord has his day. We could look at today as man having his day. But one day soon, God will have his day. The tables will be turned. And it will be a day when he is revealed in all of his glory. And on that day, the heavens will disappear, the earth and everything in it will be burned up, and this age will be no more. That's how the prophets and the apostles understood it. Which means then that God is waiting for his day and he has set the day. And the world, like a time bomb, is ticking its way towards this end, which is not a new idea. Even a doomsday prophets talk about how many minutes to midnight. But the problem is not what we're doing. The problem is what's God going to do and what God is doing, is going to do and planning to do is he is delaying and not because he is indifferent, not because he is impotent but because he does not want anyone to perish. His timetable is determined by his love for his church, not by the rotation of the world or the number of times it circles the sun. Deliberately holding back that day so that as many that he has chosen will be gathered into his kingdom, all the sheaves in the harvest. And when he is ready 
and only then it will happen. There are two metaphors, did you pick them up, that Paul uses to illustrate the day of the Lord. He First he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How many times have you had a text message or a phone call or a letter or an email from a burglar who says, just want to let you know that I'm coming to rob your house at such and such a time. Burglars do not usually give notice, advance notice of their plan to rob you. A thief's work is done in secret. He does not advertise his planned appearance. He comes when least expected. And this is how we should expect the day of the Lord. Although the time seems obvious, it's when we least expect it that the Lord will appear. The second metaphor concerns labour pains. While people are saying peace and safety, that is, the talk of the town is, we're wonderfully secure, nothing will happen to us, destruction will come on them suddenly, as suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Christ's coming will be unexpected, like a thief in the night, and it will be unavoidable, like a woman's labour. In the first case, there is no warning. In the second case, there is no escape. You cannot stop those labour pains. And what do the two have in common? It's readiness implied in both scenarios. To stop the thief, you don't go to bed. You don't turn out the light. You stay on guard. You stay awake. You keep the lights on. You lock all the doors and you guard the house to deliver the child. You're ready to jump with your bags packed according to the baby's timetable and not yours. Secondly, Paul's second response follows on and that response is that the way we live while we wait is vital. The way we live while we wait is vital. What Paul says in verses 4 to 11 agrees with what Peter concludes at the end of his second letter, chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, says Peter. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? Well, that's Paul's emphasis here. It's as though Paul and Peter got together and said, let's write about the same thing because Paul gives us that kind of emphasis. What kind of people? These three things. He wants us to be awake. He doesn't mean that we should never sleep but that we should never live as though there will be no judgment day. We should never grow low in our expectation. Jesus said the day of his return would be much like the days of Noah when people were eating, drinking and getting married. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking and getting married except that these people were doing it all without reference to what was happening around them. Noah was building an ark. Noah was speaking to them of the flood that was to come, but all they chose to do was eat and drink and get married while the ark of salvation was being built around them. They ignored the judgment that would soon wipe them away in the flood. And Jesus said that will be the same way when he comes back. 
to be awake. The apostle tells us next to be sober. Again, he's not particularly think about being drunk, the opposite of being drunk, but sober in the sense that we're not living our lives. Our lives aren't characterised by living for earthly pleasures that life affords. We're not to go through life without thinking deeply about the end of all things. Verse 5 reminds us that we are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. These are idioms, these terms, sons of light and sons of day. Paul uses them in Ephesians to talk about children of light. They're used in the New Testament to, to describe believers by a certain thing with characteristics which reflect the thing they come from. As God is light, so believers are sons of light. As there is no darkness in God, so we are not of the darkness. We don't belong to the darkness, living trivial existences. Instead, we're serious about life. We're serious people. We think about where we've come from. We're thinking about what we are here for. And we're thinking about where we are going. The end result Our purpose in life is not merely to make money and to live affluently and to live in idleness. A sober assessment of life and a sober assessment of possessions will remind us that we need to hold things loosely. For when Jesus comes, all that we have all the things that make up our lives, our sheds and our houses and our land rooms and our bedrooms, gone. Before the pandemic, do you remember what happened in Australia just before the pandemic? Bushfires. Remember how bad they were? And if nothing else, they taught us just how quickly they can do to our possessions what's going to happen to our possessions anyway, either stolen or burned up. A number of years ago, American evangelist Tony Campolo wrote a book called Who Switched the Price Tags? He shared a story in it about pranksters who broke into a clothing store in the middle of the night. They didn't steal anything, but they went around and switched all the price tags And so next morning, customers came in and found shirts that normally sold for 30 were selling for 150. Suits that sold for 300 were selling for 99. And a number of hours went by before a staff member realised what was going on. Some people were coming up to the counter with terrific buys, but others were being totally ripped off because they had no idea of the proper value of the items they were buying. And Campolo says, that's our problem. We have no idea of the value of the items we are buying because they're all worthless. In the end, they count for nothing. We live in a world where the price tags have all been changed. What the world considers to be the chief components of life that we all need to have, the Bible says are worthless. They're passing, they're transient. Instead, we are to seek first, that is, first in terms of priority, 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then Jesus said, all these other things will be added to you as as needs rather than wants. Then Paul says we are to be self-controlled. Nobody likes that term, self-controlled, do they? Self-controlled because we do not know the day or the hour of our Lord's return. Self-controlled as in watchful, like the servant in the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 who is always on the lookout for his master's return because he doesn't want to get involved in anything that's bad or wrong because he doesn't want to be found disobedient when his master returns. Friends of ours were teachers and educators in Uganda and they had servants who were in charge of the house. And once, once after our friends and their family left for an extended holiday and a trip, drove off in the car and had left the servants in charge of the house, they got a couple of k's down the road and suddenly thought, oh, we need to go back and fix up something we've forgotten about. They turned back to their house and drove down the driveway. What's the noise? What's the party going on in our house? What's happening? The servants quickly said goodbye and started to party. They were not amused. Being watchful, however, does not mean that we sit by an open window, ever gazing upward, looking at the sky, waiting for the return of Jesus, idling away the time, but that we live our lives with a completely different set of values, values that are not tied to the earth. Paul talks about this. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. And by these things we will prove to be people of God whose lives are not centred on or fixed upon what the world thinks is important. But like sentries and guards at a gate, we will guard against the world's creeping attempt to rob us of our joy by replacing our joy with something that belongs to the earth. And why? Why does Paul tell us to do all these things? Because God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fullness of that salvation comes when he comes. It's the missing part. He died for us, Paul says, so that whether we wake or asleep, whether we are awake or asleep, that is, whether we live or die, we may live together with him. This again, it touches upon what we thought about last week. We looked at last week where Paul referred to believers who had died as being asleep and to others who might be alive when the Lord comes back. Either way, he is saying whether you live or die, whether you are awake or asleep, we will live together with him and so we are to encourage one another with this. So 4.17 said, we will be with the Lord. 5.10 says, we will live with the Lord. And that's why Paul closes with the same words, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I wonder if the thought has ever crossed your mind that you might be part 
of the number of believers who are actually alive on the face of the earth when Jesus comes back. Have you ever thought about that, what might mean? What it might look like? What he might find you doing? It's a challenging thought and it's one that I should encourage you to think about often because it gives you the great encouragement to be the type of believer that the Lord expects you to be. As Spurgeon said, he said, I called to see a sister one morning and when I called she was cleaning the front steps of her house with some whitening fluid and she said, oh my dear pastor, I'm sorry that you should call upon me now. I would not have had you see me like this on my own account. And Spurgeon answered, My dear sister, that's how I would like to see you. Busy at your work. I should not have liked to have come in and caught you talking to your neighbour across the back palings. That would not have pleased me at all. So may your Lord, when he comes, find you just so, doing your duty. You see exactly what is meant here. You are to be doing your duty and be found doing your duty, engaged in the vocation to which God has called you, whatever that vocation is, to be doing it out of love to Christ and as service for him when he comes back so that you are found doing your duty. And Spurgeon adds, Oh, that we might watch in that style with our loins girded about, Work and wait and watch. Can you put those three things together, he says. Work and wait and watch. So what does it look like to do these things in everyday life? Well, those three things that are before us. To think biblically. The urgent need for the church is to think along the lines of the scripture. The only way to stay awake, to say to stay spiritually sober, is to regularly put yourself in the line of the scriptures. That is, reading it, praying through it, meditating upon it, being informed by it, being shaped by it, renewing your mind. Paul says we are to do this, Romans 12, by the transformation of, of the renewal of your mind through the scripture. That's what it's there for. If we're not in the word, if we're not having our focus constantly adjusted by the truth of the word, we will all fall short. The only antidote to falling asleep or losing track of what is happening in the world is to think through the scriptures, to have them saturate our minds and to put ourselves under them at every opportunity. Then we're to watch daily. This is biblical watchfulness, not meaning looking out your window for the return of Jesus every day and doing nothing more. But watchfulness refers to the fact that you're on guard 24-7. Everything, everything that you hear, everything that you see, 
every TV show, every song, every advertisement, every movie, run it through the biblical grid so that you can understand what's being sold to you and you can separate truth from error. Then encourage constantly. One of the ways, if not the main way, we become watchful is by encouraging one another and having that encouragement come back to you. When we come together, we need one another. As we come together and the Spirit works among us and we begin to encourage one another with the Gospel, things will change. Our perspective on life becomes different. We consider the church to be a truth outpost in a world full of lies, fake news. And only the church can do that. We ought to be those who use our speech to encourage one another because the church is the place where real life happens. It's a place to escape the lies of the world and see reality for what reality is. Only under the preaching of the word of God can we be encouraged to be those people who encourage one another with the truth of the word. Well, why does it matter? Now, what are the consequences of failing to keep track on these things, of failing to think biblically, watch daily, encourage constantly? Consider the case of William Miller, born in the early 1800s and converted during the great revival times in the northeast of America. He began to teach after reading the book of Daniel with no training at all that Jesus would come back in 1843 or 1844. He was eloquent, he was bright, he was young, he was dashing, he was a good speaker. People began to listen. Finally, he settled on one date, October 22, 1844. They were absolutely certain that his date was right. And on the dawn of the day, people all over the northeast part of America and wider got out of their beds. They went on hilltops and mountaintops. Some went to cemeteries in hopes of waiting to see their loved ones raised from the dead. The day came, got to be noon, got to be three o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock, midnight, and the day went. And the great disappointment set in, and the whole region suffered from cynicism and a hardness to the gospel, and the church didn't grow. Now, in case you think that those days are gone, in case you think that lessons have been learned, that we wouldn't do that today, I hate to tell you that that's not the case. There's been many a great disappointment with predictions throughout recent church history in relation to those who say they know when Jesus is returning. A quick Google search will come up with dates already passed for this year and for next year 
and for the one after and the one after that. But our hope, says Paul, is not a great disappointment. It's not a great disappointment. It's a wonderful fulfilment. And what was it that those men in Antarctica used to say? Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come back today. So don't worry about what day Jesus is coming back. Instead, listen to what Paul says and live as children of the day until the day comes when we will not be disappointed. As we, like these believers and those all around the world, like Paul himself, wait for the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he says, but to all who have loved his appearing. Will you be among that crowd? Will you wait and work and watch? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ of his coming again, how he came for us, how he'll come for us. And this day will not be a disappointment. When the day comes, we won't be sad. We won't be sorrowful. We won't go back to our homes. We'll delight that the day has come and we'll lift our heads high knowing that our salvation is full and near. And as we heard from Romans 13 this morning, that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Every day has inched us closer either to that doorway of death or the coming of the Lord when we will see him and rejoice in him face to face. So we pray with thankfulness and we pray with assurance that as we wait upon you and work for you and watch through all that we do, that you will come at your appointed time and you will not be slow, but you have delayed that day until all the sheaves can be gathered into the harvest. Thank you, thank you for the wonderful hope we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Encourage us and keep us fixed on him today and always.